Good morning, family. My name is Paul Inge. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. Let me read Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Jesus, what a, what a wonderful time that we have this morning in worship, praising you, the triumphant King, the King of Kings, one who has a beautiful name, Jesus, our Savior. And as we, as we enter this moment, this story where you ride in to Jerusalem, it's an unusual triumph. And Lord, as we put ourselves in that, in that moment, thinking what it must have been like, there was a a swell of emotion and hustle. There was something happening and, and people were being excited about this moment. And as we look at this time and we see the week that you uh, were entering into, here the crowds are shouting, Hosanna, save us. And seeing you for a king, and yet a few days later, there are shouts that say, we have no king but Caesar. It's an unusual triumph. And you look upon this city that you love, and you weep for it. And, Lord, we ask for your help as we enter this text this morning with Matthew as he opens up meaning in this passage. 
Lord, our hearts do say, save us. We need that. We need King Jesus. Um, Lord, we have the privilege to see your victory through this week. Lord, let us draw near to you. Strengthen our hearts. Give us um, great courage and conviction as we see the entry, the sacrifice, and the triumph of our King this week. And it is in your precious and victorious and powerful name we pray this. Amen. If you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. And if you need a Bible, you'll see a Christian standard version of the Bible there um, in front of you underneath the, the chairs. If you need a Bible to look at this morning, I'd encourage you to do that. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, take that one as our gift to you this morning. How are we all doing? Doing good? Y'all look good. Welcome once again to Grace Church this morning. This day in the church calendar, in case you've missed it, is called Palm Sunday. Because a couple of centuries ago, a Jewish rabbi named Jesus was entering the city of Jerusalem for the second time in his life as crowds of people were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. As we begin Holy Week this morning by looking at the passage that Paul just read, which for many of us is very, very familiar my hope and prayer is that you would feel joy and hope grow in your heart as you see that rescue has come in the long-awaited arrival of the king. Further, that we would see here in this story this morning describing to us the cataclysmic events that happened thousands of years ago on the outskirts of Jerusalem, that as we look at this story, it would fuel your present celebration of who Jesus is, and what he came to do. Because that is what Holy Week is for, celebrating. Okay, you all ought to amen way more than, wow. I want to pretend I said the Super Bowl is happening this week and Denver is in it. Totally misread the crowd. Wow. Stick with the manuscript, Matthew. Stick with the manuscript. Okay. So the first thing we need to do, other than recover, is that we have to get ourselves back there to around 35 AD. We need to get ourselves back there, thinking that way, in that place. We've got to get ourselves in the skin of a Jewish man or woman, boy or girl, who have heard the stories all of their lives of what it would be like when the Messiah, when the King would come. We need to get into their thinking as a people once again under the thumb of a King other than Messiah, in this case, a Caesar in Rome. Because we must remember, if we're gonna get back there to experience the story, that this story is really about the hope of salvation finally, finally fulfilled. 
You see, Matthew, the Holy Spirit-instructed author of this story, is a Jew, and he knows the story of his people very well. It is the story of a long and constant expectation, the hope of salvation. And salvation, in case you're not familiar with it, maybe you're a guest with us here, is just kind of a bible churchy word that means to be saved. It means to be taken from a place of danger into a place of safety. That's what salvation means. And the one who would bring this salvation is a savior, which is just a bible churchy word for a rescuer. And if you want to truly understand this kind of long, slowly building expectation to really feel the weight of that in the life of a people, you have to read the entirety of the Old Testament. Because without having truly walked with this people through that first part of their story, it is a bit difficult to understand how badly they longed for a Savior. Because it's there in the first part of the story that we find the ups and the downs. All the buildup, this this thread of rescue that goes throughout the whole story that's going to be brought about by a rescuer, helping us to understand that true rescue, true rescue can only come from God. You see, when God's people were in danger in the time of the judges and of Nehemiah and of the kings, it was always God who sent deliverers on his behalf to rescue his people from danger So that when, for example, David wrote of the source of his salvation and rescue, we read in 2 Samuel, David spoke the words of this song, this song to Yahweh on the day Yahweh rescued him from the grasp of all of his enemies and from the grasp of Saul. He said, Yahweh is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge and my savior, you save me from violence. I called to Yahweh who is worthy of praise and I was saved. Or the prophet Jeremiah, God, you are the hope of Israel. You are its savior in time of distress. And it was when humanity forgot this principle, it was then that it got into trouble. Why did Israel replace God and look to an idol for rescue? Psalm 106, they forgot God is their savior who did great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awe-inspiring acts at the Red Sea. And how did the prophet Isaiah clarify that it is God alone who can rescue? Here, here he is speaking on behalf of, of God to the Jews, his people. I, even I, I am Yahweh. Besides me, there's no savior. I alone declared rescue and proclaimed I and not some foreign God among you. And again, it was Isaiah who saw a future rescue and restoration of humanity. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they will be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. Then all humanity will know that I, Yahweh, am your savior and your redeemer, the redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. So Matthew knows the story of centuries long expectation of his people. He knows the ups and downs and the long wait for the rescuer to come and bring full and complete rescue. 
this hope had been building for generations. So when he sits down to write the story of Jesus, he wants people to see clearly how Jesus is the rescuer. He wants us to see that Jesus is the bringer of salvation and rescue, which is why he places it at the very beginning of the story, tipping his hand in chapter 1, verse 21. Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will rescue his people from their sins. You see, he, he tips his hand for who Jesus is and what he came to do. Now, now, why have I told you all of this? Well, I've told you all of this because you needed all of that context to properly situate yourself in the story so that Matthew 21 verses 1 to 11 will make sense so that you can see and understand exactly what is going on here. I think Matthew's making three points. I see that because I'm mainly a Baptist preacher and we always have three points. (laughs) Jesus is the king who rules us verses 1 to 7. Jesus is the king who rescues us, verses 8 to 11. And finally, repent and believe in the king. Matthew 21. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt Untie them and and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Now, this took place, narrative note, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. End narrative note. Verse six, the disciples went and they did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on them and he sat on them. The road, as you'll see from this map, into Jerusalem from the east moved from Bethany to Bethphage over the shoulder of the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples would would have been about a mile at that point from the entrance to Jerusalem, taking in stunning views, as you can see, of the city from across the Kidron Valley there that lays in front of the city. Now I want you to imagine, right? We've learned, right? Use your imagination or this picture taken by a drone standing there on the Mount of Olives. Do you know what Jesus sees? He's he's looking down from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. He sees a city four times its normal size, packed with around 180,000 pilgrims who are there for the Feast of Passover. He sees, I believe, into their hearts the pent-up hope of generations of their ancestors, the hope of salvation, the longing for a Savior, a Messiah, a King, who would rescue them from danger and bring them to a place of safety. He also sees the power of Rome, Remarkably sensitive at this time of religious fervor, right? At the time of Passover to the possibility of a revolution. See, Rome is not unaware of the history of this city, of revolutionaries who have tried to come into this city, who've done that before to set up their rule and to set a people free. 
Jesus, in other words, sees a powder keg of revolution ready to go off. I think this is why that he has skirted Jerusalem so many times in his ministry because he knew the dangers here. I think he understood that if he came here too soon, the powder cake would blow and he would be unable to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish in his ministry before it did. That's why he was always telling people to be quiet, don't spread the news, my time has not yet come, because he wasn't ready to light the fuse that would lead to his death. Friends, Jesus understands the story he is in and the role he is supposed to play. He has the script well in hand. And he knows that now, now is the time. This year, this Passover, now is the time to play his part, to force a response from the religious leaders and the Romans and the Jews, to light the fuse. And he knows just how he's going to do it. He's got to tap into the story, the story that they know. The story's told through the prophets about the king, the savior who would come to rescue his people from their oppressor. He needs to provide a visual to make it clear that he's doing just that. He needs to make it, well, you know, abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. So he connects the dots. He turns to his disciples and he tells them where to go to find a donkey and her foal. You see, this isn't because Jesus has somehow just gotten tired. He just walked a hundred miles with his disciples. He just has one more mile to go. He doesn't need a ride. He needs a symbol. And just so we don't miss that, Matthew makes sure we have the script that Jesus had in verses 4 and 5. He tells you this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, all my good Bible study students here at Grace Church, if you've been at Grace Church for a while, right, we know what to do when we see an Old Testament quotation in the New Testament, don't we? What do we do? We go back to the Old Testament and we read the context. And if we were to do that, we would see that Matthew has misquoted Zechariah. Now, why would he do that? He hasn't quoted him exactly. Let me take you to Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Okay, that was missing. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That would have been the text that everybody around the outskirts of Jerusalem would have heard growing up so that when they see Jesus like this, that's their expectation, a victorious king. Your triumph is coming. But Matthew doesn't quote, your triumph is coming. Matthew doesn't quote, He's righteous and victorious. Is Matthew playing fast and loose with the Bible? I don't think so. I think he knows that people are going to remember the words of Zechariah because they've been 
waiting quite a long time for their fulfillment. But this is another tipping of Matthew's hand as he tells the story. See, that's not the emphasis Matthew wants to make on who Jesus is. Matthew wants to see the kind of king we're supposed to see. He's gentle. He wants to emphasize the humility of Jesus here, the gentleness of Jesus, because he will be victorious as Messiah and king, but not in the way that they expected. You see, Jesus is the king who rules us, and the rule he is bringing is one of rescue. It is one of salvation. But what we are about to see as the story continues to unfold over the course of this week, we're gonna be in Matthew on Good Friday at 6 p.m. We're gonna be in Matthew on Sunday morning. What we're going to see then and now is that what it means, what it means is that Jesus gets to define what the rescue will look like. Jesus gets to do that. He gets to set the priority for the rescue that we need most, not necessarily the rescue that we want most. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. But, net, let, but next, let's, let's take a look at how the people respond. Because I think the religious leaders and the Romans and the Jews also understand the story that they are in and they play their parts accordingly. Verse 8. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. And the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, quote in the Old Testament, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, oh, this is, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, Jesus is really close to the gates of Jerusalem now. Okay, he's not in yet, which is kind of ironic that it's called the triumphal entry because he's not in yet. He's just really close and he has some crowds behind him and in front of him. And I believe these crowds are the people that would be most familiar with Jesus. They've, they've come with him from Galilee, far in the north. You could kind of think of them as like their ho his homies. Okay? Hanging out with Jesus. They know Jesus. They're Jews, yes, but they're a very different group of Jews other than those who reside in Judea and who are already inside of the city. They're Galileans. They're almost considered foreigners to those who are in Judea. They even have different accents, which we're going to see later in the story, which is what calls Peter out because he sounds different. And these travelers with Jesus have totally picked up on the Im imagery and symbolism. Their pent-up hopes are exploding in the joy of fulfillment. And so they cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Huh. Have you ever asked, why those phrases? Why are they... Why are they singing those lyrics? Because that's what they are. They're lyrics. Well, because they'd been taught these lyrics since they were children. Just like their forefathers. 
You can read them in Psalm 118, which is the last and longest of the Hallel Psalms, which were taught to God's people specifically to chant and sing at the major festivals of celebration in Jerusalem. This song in particular sings of the rescue of Yahweh, of his people as the source of their salvation. It anticipates in its verses the long-expected hopes of a Messiah fulfilled in the city of Jerusalem. The prayers of God's people answered, which is what the word Hosanna means. It's a compound word in Hebrew, which means rescue us now, we pray. It is a recognition, recognition that there will be a king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh, who will march through the gates, bringing righteousness and rescue with him. So of course they're singing Psalm 118 when they see Jesus on a donkey riding towards Jerusalem. He's come! <laughs> He's come! And all the homies break out and singing. There is a tremendous amount of joy in that moment outside Jerusalem. I wonder if there's joy in my heart as I read it. <laughs> they understand the symbolism and they celebrate and proclaim about Jesus, who he is, and this time, he doesn't stop them. He doesn't say, be quiet. My time hasn't come. He wants the secret out. <laughs> they are celebrating rescue, and in this moment, he delights in their celebration. I you have to picture things, right? When you're reading the Bible, please picture stuff. Even take out a pencil and draw stick figures if you need to, like I do. I'm not a very good artist. I think he's smiling. I think he has a big grin on his face as he sees because he knows he's going to answer their hopes. And it's here that we have to pause and connect the pieces that Jesus and Matthew have given us. We have to pay close attention to the script of Zechariah 9.9 and Psalm 118. You see, Jesus is the king. That's true, and he's bringing rescue. And that is true, too. And because he is the king, he is the one who defines the rescue that we need most, not necessarily the one that we want most. Because that's what we see in the story of Holy Week, is it not? What the people want as they throng around Jesus is liberation and rescue from oppression, right? But here's the problem. The primary rescue Jesus is on about is a rescue from the oppression of sin, you remember, that's what Matthew said in chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son. Your name him Jesus, because he will save his people from the Romans. No, from their sins. But what the people want is rescue from the oppression of Rome. Author and scholar Karen Hinckley writes, they wanted liberty on their terms, under their control. They would not humble themselves before a God who wanted their hearts in the tough choices of self-sacrifice and love. And therefore, although they could quote every scripture about Yahweh coming to his temple, although they knew Zechariah and the Hallel Psalms, they did not properly recognize the kind of king Jesus was and the kind of rescue he would bring when he came. Jesus came gentle. Verse five. 
He came humble. Jesus' victory would not be through strength, but through weakness. This king would bring righteousness and rescue, yes, but not on a war horse overcoming Rome with military strength, but riding on a donkey, which would eventually lead to hanging on a cross. To die and to take care of my biggest problem, sin. The oppression and the rule and the reign of sin. I grew up in the church. I've heard a lot of Palm Sunday sermons. And most of them were from preachers who beat up on these people for being stupid. Right? Have you heard those sermons? How could they not see? <laughs> How could they not? What rubes? How did they not understand who Jesus was? It's so abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. What were they thinking? How could they miss who Jesus is and what he was about and how he would rescue? But be careful. You would have responded in exactly the same way back then. And you know why I think that is? Because you respond in the same way now. Because this is our problem. We don't want an authority in our lives that determines what our problem really is and the rescue that we really need, we go to God and we say to God, so God, um, you need to give me exactly what I need. What I think I need from you. Here's my problem, God, and, and here's how you're going to fix it. Here's how you're going to rescue me. Isn't that what is happening in Jerusalem in Holy Week? They thought they needed someone to bring judgment down on the Romans who in their eyes were ruining the world, were messing everything up for them, were oppressing them. That's the problem, God. That's the rescue we need from Rome. Bring them down. They thought they needed from God someone to bring judgment down on the people who were ruining the world when what they actually needed was someone to come and bear the judgment for them because they were the people who were ruining the world. Because everyone in the human race is a part of ruining the world. What they really needed was pardon for their sins. What they really needed was something to reconcile them to God. That was their greatest and most pressing need, says one author. Someone to bear the punishment that they deserved so that someday God could come back to earth and end all evil without ending you and me. <laughs> so there is what they wanted, what they thought they needed on the one hand, and there is what Jesus is actually going to give them on the other. So they are yelling, Hosanna! Hosanna, you are going to give us what we want most. <laughs> Hallelujah. The Messiah has come. And what Jesus is going to do is give them what they need most. 
The story of Palm Sunday is an incredible parable of the lifelong mismatch between what you want from God and what God is providing to you. It is a lifelong mismatch between what our expectations are and what God actually provides, what we think we need and what God says we need. Jesus is the king who rules us and he is the king who rescues us. And what's our response on Palm Sunday? Well, it's the response that should be every Sunday. Repent and believe. Martin Luther famously said, our king and master, Jesus Messiah, willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Now, he didn't mean by that that we should morosely think that our lives will be one long screw-up. Quite the opposite. He recognized that the way that we will actually make progress in our lives following King Jesus, moving one step closer to him, is to have the areas where we fall short increasingly revealed. That's really hard. Because when, when Jesus does that by the power of the Spirit in my life, when he increasingly reveals an area in my life that is in need of repenting of, that's painful. And what I want to do is I want to hide it and I want to cover so I'm not seen to be the sinner that I am, that I've got it fixed, that I'm okay, I've got my stuff together. I remember being on a hike a number of months ago with a very dear friend of mine walking along and feeling this. He was revealing something to me while we're on the hike. And I felt him saying, share it with Carl. And I said, "Uh -uh. uh-uh. No, this is a fun hike. I I don't want to talk about my sin. But I did, and I realized as we talked about it, like, this is actually what being a follower of Jesus means. This is what it looks like. I don't have to be afraid of this. He's finding things in me, and he's revealing those things in me, and he means to rescue me of those things. So repent and believe all over again in the rescue provided freely by Jesus. Redemption accomplished and applied That is what these tables in front of you are all about. Your sin covered by his blood so that you may be forgiven. All of our lives are repent and believe. He's probably bringing some things right now to your mind. How How do you need to repent and believe this morning as a subject of King Jesus? Do you understand that? You're a subject of a king? Maybe God has revealed to you this morning that you need to repent of not trusting in Jesus to rule in the way that he rescues you. Maybe you've been frustrated with God because there is some circumstance in your life that you are tired of being in, some situation, some issue that won't go away, some person that won't let up, and you've been living in discontent and anger because he hasn't rescued you from that. And you need to repent and believe 
that Jesus is your king and you need to rejoice because he's already taken care of the biggest problem that you've ever had, your sin, which separated you from God and had you headed for hell and wrath forever. And you need to move, maybe you need to move towards praise again. Hosanna to God, to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh to save me from my biggest problem, my sin. Maybe you need to rest, to rest, rest in his sovereign reign and rule in your life. Wow, that's what I need. I didn't know that when I wrote it. That's what I need this morning. I need to rest in his reign and rule in my life. I need to learn to be content with whatever situation I am in. Satisfied in the salvation that he has provided in exactly the contours in which he has provided it. Happy in his decisions for all the contours of my life. Family, if you will learn that Jesus has taken care of your greatest need and rescued you from your greatest problem, you will actually live a fairly contented and happy life along with all of your first world problems that you gripe about. Okay, that was a little bit of a rant. I'm sorry. I was talking to me too, just so you know. So repent and believe. Worship team, would you come up? Okay, that, that's one kind of person that needs to repent and believe, but maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you're watching on that live stream right now and you haven't really taken much of a step at all toward Jesus. You, you are not in God's family it is just now, this morning, that you are seeing him for the first time as the long-awaited fulfillment of all of your hopes. For the very first time, maybe you're understanding that the problem that you really have beneath all of your other problems is your sin. And that Jesus is the only one that can provide rescue for you. This is why we're here to tell you that he can take care of the pain and grief attached to all of the wrong that you have done so that you can then go and deal with the rest of the mess of your life. Maybe you came in here or you're sitting somewhere out there watching saying, I have my needs and I have my problems and God, you need to help me. Tim Keller reminds us that Jesus always says, I'm going to go to the root of things in your life. Which is that you need to be reconciled to God. You need to have your sins dealt with. You need to have a relationship with God through me. So repent and believe. If maybe you're seeing him for the first time. And I want to give you a prayer. So can we just all bow our heads because maybe you're here and, and you've never closed the gap with Jesus. And you can say along, you can just pray this along with me. Jesus, I see for the first time that the biggest problem in my life is my own sin. And I know that there is nothing that I can do to earn God's forgiveness for that sin. And my sin can only be taken care of by receiving what you have done to pay for my sin on the cross where you died so that I don't have to pay for that sin in hell forever. I want to receive your rescue. 
I want to accept your rule in my life because I believe that you are a good king. Please save me right now and help me to live my life for you. Yes. And very amen in Jesus' name. Someone maybe just came into the kingdom. This is what this table is all about. Servers, would you come up? And if you prayed that prayer, this could be your first communion. (laughs) This is what we do as followers of Jesus, as subjects of our king, as we come together and we have symbols. It's like that donkey was a symbol. These are symbols. The juice for his blood, the bread for his body. Do you remember what we said last time we celebrated communion last month? And I gave you the story of the Lord of the Rings in, in Pippin, that, that monster's coming into the city and, 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 he, and they hear the horns. They, they think destruction is imminent. They hear the horns and, and, of course, and, and then they're rescued, right? And of course, the rest of his life, he, he will always remember that moment of rescue, but that it was when he heard the horns that it came alive in a new way. And, and, and so here we are again on, on a communion Sunday and the horns are blaring. <laughs> Rejoice! Shout in triumph! You have been saved by the death of Jesus. So you don't have to be a member of this church. You just have to be a member of God's family. All you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of all of your sins and the fulfillment of all of God's promises to you, even eternal life, and you can celebrate this meal with us. So you can get up this section here, go that way, Come around the table, go down the aisle and go back in. This section here, go towards the wall, come around the table and then back in this way. This section also towards that wall, come up here, Ron will serve you and you go back in. That section towards that wall, come up, Dan will serve you, go down the aisle and back in and then hold the elements. Usually this is a time where we can, we can talk to our father. Maybe there's, maybe there's something you need to talk to him about. We don't want to eat in an unworthy manner. And then we'll, we'll take all of the elements together. All right? So come and welcome to the Messiah, your King.
You know how I, I'm pretty sure I've told this to you guys. I, I so often think of this moment and I want there to be gravity and gladness here. Right? There's a sobriety because, because he died and, and it hurts like when I read the story and I see the pain that he endured, it, it hurts. And at the same time, like isn't this how Paul like sorrowful and yet always rejoicing? It's, it's just like mixed because in this morning especially, like I can't get the smile off my face because I'm just so happy to be rescued because I'm such a horrible sinner, you guys. Oh my word. Like I so need saving. And he has. <laughs> Rejoice greatly. He has saved us. As they were eating, Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew the story he was in. It was at Passover. He, he knew that we would need a symbol. He knew we'd need to remember this, that we'd be in danger of forgetting exactly what he had done. So he took bread and blessed it and broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, and, I, and now he transports them immediately out of that moment, right? And he takes them to the great end. I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, in a new heavens and a new earth. Drink and remember. And then they sang a hymn. <laughs> they sang. Because of course they did. Right? I was in Matthew 5 through 7 this week. And you get to the end, right? It's this great sermon from Jesus. And what does he say? If you will take these words of mine and you will build your life on them, you will be like a house built on a rock. And when the storms come and the winds blow, you will make it. This is who we build our lives on, family. On this king. Stand and sing. 